There are two kinds of people in the insurance industry. Those who are captive and those who are free. This is the Agency Freedom Podcast. Captivity can go far beyond the companies you represent. It starts between your ears and its impact is felt in every corner of your business. We're all about helping agency principals and sales professionals reach your maximum potential and flex your freedom. If your goals are big enough, you're going to have to get uncomfortable to be able to reach them. Our team at RiskWell is living this out every single day. This show is where I share our successes, our failures, and everything I learn along the way. We deliver relevant, tactical, and actionable content from industry peers, innovative partners, and a variety of leaders from other business verticals. We're not holding anything back. There's no upsell, no guru pitch, and no fluff. It's time to unshackle yourself from captivity and make your freedom jump with the Agency Freedom Podcast. Let's go. Hey, boys and girls, welcome back to the show. It's another episode of the Agency Freedom Podcast. We help insurance professionals move from captivity to freedom. This is the final episode of our podcaster series, and I might have saved the best for last. I don't know. He's definitely in consideration for it with apologies uh, to Bradley and Scott uh, and the other folks in the podcaster ecosystem. My man, Ryan Hanley from the great state of New York, uh, his, he is known far and wide for uh, being a strong opinions and hard and fast kind of guy. And I have a feeling that this episode is going to be a lot of fun for you out there in audience land. So Ryan, thanks for hopping on, man. James, great to be here, bud. And any anybody who does any sort of podcasting stuff, uh, consumption of podcasting stuff in our industry, knows precisely who Ryan Hanley is. You're right up there with Bradley and Scott, very highly visible content creator. The difference is you are OG, my friend. You are going all the way back to before podcasting was even cool. Um, you started, and we talked about this just very briefly, you started back in 2011, yes. literally, literally 11 years or 12 years ago now with your your entry into podcasting. I, I know we're not going to talk biography because you've already been on the show and folks pretty much know who you are, but I'd love to hear the, the background on the idea of, hey, I'm going to do a podcast uh, leading up to you deciding to create what became Content Warfare Podcast. Uh, give us the the headspace on your decision to jump into that game. Yeah. So back then um, I was testing everything. Um, I was a really terrible traditional insurance person. So I was trying all kinds of stuff, everything that had to do with content, you know, as much as video content was possible. I was trying that with YouTube. I was writing, I was using social media, although today uh, anyone who wasn't using social media back in 2009, 10, 11, 12 would look at social media then versus now and it would be like archaic. It would be, you know what I mean? It'd be like us using a dial-up modem compared to what those platforms look like today. I just, I'm a tester. You know, I, I, I'm not a smart prognosticator. I, I, I have opinions, obviously, and I'm seemingly have been able to pick a few trends, but, um, I only know those things because I test everything. I don't pretend to like know what's coming. And I think the people that do oftentimes are are full of uh, BS because you just don't know. You don't know what works. You don't know what works for you. You don't know what works for your audience. You know, you can read every book. You can, you can follow every influencer. You can, you know, do the best practices and all this kind of stuff. And it could all simply fall on its face. We, we don't know what works for us, what works for our audience, what works for our business until we test stuff. So I test everything. So, you know, I, I think I said this, uh, we were together, which was a ton of fun in Austin at the, uh, what is it, One City World Tour um, event that Bradley and the guys, and Bradley and Scott and the guys from uh, Glovebox put on. And uh, I said right at the beginning of that presentation that I did there that that the stuff that I talk about is just hard knocks. I mean, this is just hard knocks. So in that vein, podcasting was starting to become a thing. Now, if I were to explain to the audience what it took to put a podcast out into the world in 2011, 2012 versus what it takes today, um, you 90% of the people that have podcasts wouldn't want to have podcasts. It was a lot of work. There was 
tag, you had a whole separate software for tagging. There was no audio collection software. You had to have like a hardcore audio software. There wasn't all these nice, simple, neat programs for recording. You had to figure out how to record, right? My first three podcasts, I recorded into my cell phone just by talking to them. I just talked into my cell phone, took the audio, had to email it to myself, which took forever, then download it out of my email, then figure out how to edit it. I think I used back then a really expensive version. Uh, No, I was using a free software. Shoot, I'm going to forget the name of it. But it was like this hacked up free software that again, if you if people today were to look at the UX and how it worked, you gag and um, and it was really hard to use. And then you'd export that and then you had to have a separate piece of software to put tags on it, like the title and and all you know, all this stuff that had to be included. Like today, like this this program that we're that we're operating in Riverside, it's gonna automatically add all those tags, all those little things that are necessary to go out as an RSS feed. Well you back then you had to do all that yourself. You know what I mean? And you had to put all that stuff in or when you went to push it out into the RSS feed, it just wouldn't propagate. It would just wouldn't go anywhere, which so there was all these like things. But I I wanted to see if this format works. Some of the people that I followed were starting to test uh, podcasts and I said and I was always trying to get a competitive advantage. So I said, screw it, like I'll just see if this works. And what I found is I really enjoyed the audio format. I really enjoyed the long form format. The first couple episodes I did were like in the high 20s in terms of time and I rapidly pushed that to an hour because anyone that knows me knows that I like the words Um, and (laughs) seemingly uh, my day, the quality of my day is judged by how many leave my face. So, um, so, you know, I rapidly went to a long form format of an hour, uh, rapidly went to uh, interview style and because at that time, most of the people in the insurance industry looked at me as like, a, you know, the charlatan who was pushing alternative forms of collecting uh, leads. Um, I I didn't speak specifically to the insurance industry. I spoke to a broader marketing audience. And um, I called the co- show Content Warfare because I believed, and still today, even though, um, you know, you can't use the word warfare, or at least it's frowned upon because we have all these liberal idiots in our country. But um we'll just call them snowflakes, um, that, that can't handle that word. I do. It is actually a battle. Like the whole point of it was, uh, the whole context was, you know, content warfare, you know, how to win the battle for attention online. Like I saw back then the content and our ability to proliferate our message out into the world was the game. That was the game. And whoever could get their message in front of the most people won, whether you were the the, the, you know, the best provider of a service or not, if you could get your message out ahead of people, you won. Podcasting was wide open in our space. And uh, what I did was basically use, I talked to a broader audience, but talked through the filters of what I was learning in the insurance industry. And that allowed me to capture a very broad audience beyond just insurance, but also speak to the insurance industry at the same time. Man, I love that. You know, just thinking of the industry itself, uh, in in 2011, uh, insure as a category didn't even exist then. Wasn't it wasn't until word. probably 2015, 2016 that started to become a thing. Yeah, obviously it's totally mainstream now. But the 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 vendors back then, I mean, non-existent. It, it, you, know, you had the yeah. AMS, you had the CRM, you had the the VOIP was kind of becoming a thing. Uh, you know, just looking at the ecosystem of the insurance industry back then. It's fascinating to think about how hard it was to do things that we now take for granted. Like a lot of people don't even know what RSS feed is because they haven't ever had to use one. Yeah. Yeah. So it's basically a syndication for – it's basically taking your content and putting it into a format that allows it to be syndicated uh, out through different systems that push push content. So like you know, if you read – Let's say you do, um, uh, just to give people an idea of what that means, RSS, and give them a context. Let's say you do a, a press release, right? And you use one of those press release services that you pay 250 or 500 bucks for or whatever. They basically take that press release and they put it, you know, one of the services that they do is they, they put it in a coded format that they're able to push out through an RSS feed, um, which then is able to get picked up by like when you then go search, it's like on 
the Dallas Times, you know, and it's on the Phoenix Sun, you know, whatever. And there's all these like, you know, syndicated services that republish that content. You know, there has to be set up in a separate way to do that. So while today, almost any system that you'll use can does it for you automatically. It did not do it for you automatically back then, which was a huge barrier to people starting their own shows because it took research. It took work. You couldn't just like pop open, you know, pop open a piece of software you pay 15 bucks a month for, record an episode, blast it out through Apple and have a podcast. It just, you know, even Apple back then was like, it took weeks and weeks for them to approve a show. Like you just didn't get your show approved. Like you were actually lucky if your show got approved. Like you had to meet all these certain requirements and parameters. You had to have multiple episodes submitted. When you first submitted, you couldn't just submit one episode. You had to submit, I think it was either three or five episodes and they would like review them and then come you know, come back and say, this isn't set up properly or whatever. It was like a, it was a lot of work to get it going. Once you got it going Mm. and you got through the, the, you figured it out. I mean, then you just did it. But like, it took me a few weeks to figure out how to do it back then. And, you know, which was nice because that was a competitive advantage because, you know, the best part about our industry is most people are lazy and set in their ways. So when new things happen, you can get way out ahead of the competition very fast just by taking a little initiative. Well, and a lot of people have said it uh, in in recent weeks, uh, and I 100% agree. Uh, one of the, the biggest challenges in our industry is uh, crowdedness. And one of the biggest challenges in getting your message out is the noise, because the beautiful thing about our industry is that success is there for the taking. The hard part of our industry is that there's plenty of room for mediocre and subpar players to have success. And you know, it, it, that's probably the most difficult thing for people like you and I that really are striving to be the very best version of ourselves is, I mean, to the general public, even to the listening audience in insurance land, it's really hard to figure out who the actual A players are, the ones that are worth listening to versus the ones that, you know, sound like they know what they're talking about. But when you get down to it, it's actually bullshit. See, I'm going to push back on you. I think that there's no noise in our industry. I think it's, I think the exact opposite. I love our space because to me, it may seem since you and I are active, we look around and we see other people, but the truth is there's nobody creating the noise is so, you know, we, we, you know, the noise that we're talking about are people who create one blog post a month, one blog post a week, right? Maybe a couple YouTube videos, maybe they put something out on social, right? Like we, we look at. You know, one of the hardest things about being an event planner in our space is that there's only so many people that are doing anything outside of what everyone else is doing, which is yep. very traditional, very standard, that there's not there's not that many people to have come speak. If you go to one event, you've basically seen every speaker that exists in the industry who's who's saying anything new. So, you know, I think time is the ultimate determining factor on quality, right? So like Time in space ultimately determines who wins because what most people do is they hear a talk from you or they listen to a podcast or they hear David Carruthers on, you know, insurance guys podcast, whatever happens, and they get jacked up for a minute and they're like, oh, I'm going to be this person. I'm going to do this thing. I'm going to make this content. And they do. And there's like this rip and they push into the space and, you know, they, they get a few videos and they do some LinkedIn posts and then all of a sudden, because it's not easy, consistency is hard, right? And and you're not yep. going to long term, you only see the results from a, from a very low interest or, or a very low percentage compound interest standpoint, you know, they just give up. So it's like you see all these flash in the pans and, you know, people can say whatever they want uh, about me, my career, you know, I get a lot of flack for different things I've said, done, been fired from this company, this didn't work, you were here, but... I don't get, I'll tell you, I'll take my time in space and consistency of message versus just about anybody. And, you know, that's what I hope people listen to my show and my content, or if they come see me speak, what I'm hoping is that they can trust, look, I've been here and I'm not going anywhere, right? Like I've been saying basically the same thing since 2009. I mean, obviously I try to iterate it or update it as per our current, you know, relevant marketplace, but the concepts, the the values, the core principles of the ideas that I share are basically the same. And, you know, I, I think it's it's all just time and market, right? Like yeah. 
If that's that's really the point. You're there's the number of twenty episode podcasts that just end is. I mean, there's got to yeah. be hundreds of thousands of them, right? They just you get twenty episodes in, you go, oh, you know, and then you don't do it anymore. I I love the pushback uh, because it forces me to clarify uh, the message that I was bringing. Is your perspective is spot on and. Uh, you make an excellent point. There is a lot of instigation. There's not a lot of follow through. Yeah. And I caught a lot of flack from uh, what I said two episodes ago when I uh, said there's a whole bunch of people um, in our space that start something and then just quietly fade away. And they get busy running their agency. And I said it in the episode. I made I built in the excuses like all these people are agency owners. They're not professional digital marketers. They're not professional podcast people. They're insurance people that are trying to be content creators on the side. And, uh, you know, basically what I'm, what I'm saying is too many people are telling us what they're going to do, not what they have yeah. already done or are in the middle of doing. And I know you and I are both a huge fan of Ryan Holiday yeah. uh, and the whole stoic philosophy way of thinking. Uh, in his book, Ego is the Enemy, um, he says exactly that. Stop talking about what you're going to do. Mm-hmm. Feel free to talk about what you've already done and share it with your peers or what you're in the middle of doing. Like if you're actively doing something, by all means, you know, share what you're up to. But the whole, I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do. I, I just, I was pinned to the wall on that. It was like the marketer in me wants to tell you what I'm going to do. wants to share this cool idea that I had, but ideas are worthless if there's yeah. no follow through. That's where the whole implement or die came from it's like if you're not yeah. implementing what you're learning it has no value of any kind so yeah. uh, I, that's kind of where my head is at with the space being crowded but i totally get where you're coming from if the space isn't crowded yeah. it's you know it's crowded in about as long as it takes you to light a match and for the fire to burn for a second and then it goes away so uh, yeah i can i probably have the third most prolific in terms of views youtube channel on all of the internet and I also have the seventh most, if you count the Murray Group, which I no longer update, but created back back in the day. Um, so probably have two of the top most visited YouTube channels in all the insurance industry in terms of Rogue Risk and the Murray Group. After about 10 or 12 channels, there's literally no one left. It literally goes from like a couple hundred thousand views. Um, there's, two, there's two channels that are just really well optimized that do really well. And then uh, there's Rogue which we tend to operate right in number three. This is channels that don't pay for their views, right? So organic views, because paying for their views, not that there's anything wrong with that, but I'm not considering them necessarily competition because we could go and just, we could throw gas on that fire at any time too. So I'm not too worried about that. We talk about organic and I I use a tool called vidIQ to find this. We're consistently right around number three Um, and we're growing. We did 137,000 views on YouTube last, last year. Um, that number gets down to about 50,000 views around where the Murray Group is. Um, they've kind of fallen off quite a bit just because they don't continue to update the channel, but still get a decent number of views considering the work was done almost a decade ago. And um, after that, it falls down to like a couple thousand views a year, right? And I look at that and I'm like, so if you're telling, not you personally, but if someone were to say to me like, oh, you know, I'm thinking about getting into video, into YouTube, but like, man, there's so many channels. And I'm like, there's 10. You're telling me that you wouldn't step into a space nationally with 10 competitors? Like, you know, so, so I think that, I think that you are right. There are a lot of people that love to talk about what they're going to do because it seems amazing, right? It's tons of fun. You get all this social media stuff, right? Like, oh, hey, it's just like losing weight. Oh, I'm going to go on this great weight, you know, diet program. And then six months later, they're doing the same post again, but it's all, you know, they, oh, you know, I didn't do this, no, this, all this, but I'm going to lose it all the weight again. And then now they get all this fresh dopamine hits because everyone's excited about what they're going to do. And it's like, you know, I, I, I will say that I have very little patience for that these days. I, 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 I am not good in a bureaucracy for two reasons. One, you're forced to suffer people who have never actually done the work. I, I really, I really struggle with people who haven't, you know, I, I did a podcast uh, a few weeks ago. I can't remember the exact name, but it was like, never get comfortable with being uncomfortable or something. Who the fuck knows? Yeah. It was yep. Probably not the best title, but the point of it was, you know, surround yourself like that. The final point was like, 
surround yourself with people who walk with a limp, who've been in battle, who've had the crap kicked out of them. Like, if you've never got a black eye, I don't want you to tell me how to throw a punch, right? Like, you can't teach me how to throw a punch if you've never had a black eye. And, yep. like, that mentality to me um, is really important when you're figuring out who to listen to. And there are a lot of people, and this is nothing against consultants, and I know there's people who are who are marketing people or event people in our space who you know are great at sharing value but I really struggle when they try to inject their opinion into topics they've never actually participated in that doesn't mean they can't have value or we can't learn from them it just they have I I maybe pass them through a f- a stricter filter if that makes sense and then yeah. the other thing is um people who just want to tell me what they're going to do but never do it um, that is the other side of it that, you know, those, those two, those are two of my main filters. You've never actually done the work or you're always kind of just telling me what you're going to do, but you never actually do it or you never actually follow through really, really hard for me to take you seriously because there's just experience and getting the crap kicked out of you is, is part of how you get better. And if you're unwilling to put yourself in those situations, if you're unwilling to, to say something that gets pushed back or try something or take a stand in an organization for something that you don't believe, you know, against something that you don't believe in and, and fall on the knife kind of, or, or, or if you're not willing to do those things, then, you know, you're not really willing to, I'm not really willing to give you my attention because that is our most valuable asset that we have is our attention. Where we spend our attention, where we put our what we put our focus on is who we become. That that statement about the consultants really rings true uh, because there are certain consultants that have been in the game uh, yep. that have sold lots of lots of lots of policies that have, mm-hmm. as you say, the black eyes and the limps to show for it. You know, the first one that comes to mind uh, is Mick Hunt and Premier yep. Strategy Box. Mick was an extremely successful agent and only left that agency, one, because he was able to sell for a very nice number uh, and decided that he wanted to scale up and help other agents do what he had already done. But he speaks from experience. When he talks about sales process, he knows exactly what he's talking about because he did it in the trenches. And, you know, I, I turn and look at someone who has, I mean, she said it from stage in Austin. Uh, Carrie Wallace, there's certain things that you're never going to hear her talk about because when she speaks, she only speaks on areas that she has personal credibility with. And she said it from stage, I've never sold a policy. I don't know anything about a lot Mm -hmm. of things about being an insurance agent. But what she does know is finance. Uh, What she does know is business tactics. Uh, I think it's fascinating. And that's great. Uh, When you get somebody who's never done it and tries to tell you how to do it. And, and again, to the time and market part, so uh, another good example is Kelly Donahoe-Piro. I do not think that she's worked in an agency, and I could be wrong. I know most of her experience comes from helping agents, but she's no. been in the space for almost a decade and a half now, helping agents and has many successful outcomes over and over again as a consultant, and at this point has earned her stripes. And anything that she talks about, especially from service optimization and efficiency and effectiveness is absolutely she's earned every bit of the respect that she gets because of time and market. So, you know, yeah. I don't it is you you have to do one of those two things. She she's taken the lumps through X number of consulting engagements and helping people. So it's like you don't I, I don't like the pure if you never serviced a policy, you never sold a policy, your opinion doesn't matter. I don't like that because I think it limits the scope of who we can get value from. I just think that we, those two are probably the first two filters that we need to use to kind of as bullshit meters is like, if you're a 27 year old sales consultant, you've never sold an insurance policy. I could give a shit about what you say. I mean, I just, I just assume you don't have a single clue and I'm not going to listen to what you're saying. Yeah. And I mean, we are all familiar with the old moniker, those who can't play coach. And it's like, Okay. Do you ha- do you have something to show? I I love your your way of approaching it. It's an either or kind of proposition. If you don't have the black eyes, then have you been around the game long enough yeah. to have something of value to add uh, to show us that are in the game that are currently playing right now how to do yeah. things better. Um that yeah. we could we could chase that trail for a while, I think. Uh I I wanted to give you just a little bit of you know encouragement, and not that you need it, 
I I think it was really interesting the way that you took the the approach in Austin. You you told your backstory and you told you know basically going back to uh, Murray Group and if I counted it right, you were fired four different times, and it's like. I count them as firings, technically fired twice, asked to leave twice. So, you know, but if we're getting semantical, uh, but yes, yeah, essentially relationship purposefully ended uh, four times. Yes, we can. That's how we probably the best way to position it. And all I see there is just adding more and more credibility to the fact that you, sir, are an alpha. You are built to be an entrepreneur you are built to be the one taking the the risk you're the one built to make the call and deal with the consequences you are uh the man in the arena uh from teddy roosevelt's uh speech that i know you and i are both extremely I have it fond on my of. wall yeah you it's, are it's the man right the above arena. my booze my like little booze cabinet the little picture i have right above my booze cabinet is the man in the arena i don't know if that's uh I don't know what that means, but that's that's where it is. You know, I, I hear your story, and I I hear one the guy at the gym was just a complete idiot and probably unethical beyond belief. But uh, the other three, it's like all that shows me is Hanley is built to be the man in the chair. Like I am unhirable at this point, and I hear all of the stuff that you were sharing in Austin. I'm like. Dude, that could just as easily be me if I was sitting in a W-2 position somewhere. I would definitely get fired. I've, I've said it more times than I can count. I would make a terrible employee at, yeah. at this point in my life. And I probably can't ever be hired in the future unless it's someone who gives me complete authority to run the operation the way that I see fit. And everybody's responsible to somebody, of course. I'm not saying I don't want to be responsible to anybody because at the end of the day, you're responsible to the client if no one else but the idea of you know you or i or you know some of these other people taking orders from someone in a corporate environment it's just laughable man it's 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 absurd to think about yeah i think i want to be i want to be um i want to make sure that i that i position this in the right way so cuz i, cause I cause i've thought about this a lot right cuz this is obviously my life and um, yeah. and the last time i was fired which that was my brief stint in the in the gym industry and for anyone that doesn't know that part the 10 second tour there is i was working for bold penguin i had a family member get terminally ill and basically the bold penguin was a three to four week a month travel job and i couldn't travel anymore because i had this family member who was sick and i just couldn't be on the road so unfortunately there was no place for me there if i couldn't travel so i had to leave and there was nothing in albany in the insurance industry and i took the next best thing which was the ceo of a fitness franchise I doubled the size of the membership in nine months, at which point I had grown the business so fast and into such profitability that um, the founder fired me. So um, that one was – that one was um, – That's a real that head scratcher, probably, man. I got to be honest. That one doesn't make a bit of sense to me. As, uh, as a business owner, as someone who hires high-performance team members, I don't understand that let's one. Let's just say he's never read Ego is the Enemy. Let's just put it that way. Because uh, I don't want to spend too much time on him. But no, that no, was that's, really, that's a tangent. Sorry. Yeah, no, it's fine. Um, so, you know, that that was just, that was really like the, um, that was, the, I saw that after a brief, I'll say one day period of really feeling sorry for myself, which I did. Because it was kind of like, again, like again, geez, I gave this everything I had and again, it didn't work. That was like, I had like a day. And then the next day I kind of snapped out of it. Um and uh, was like, this is the universe pushing me into this path of entrepreneurship. But to be to be fair, um, you know, I don't, I, I I completely hear, understand, appreciate, and respect when you say I'm unhirable. That being said, um, and and I don't mean this. Please don't take this the wrong way, because I because I completely understand what you're saying. I I don't want to be unhirable. I don't want to be. And the reason yeah. for that is because, and the reason I say that is I think the next evolution of an, I think part of your initial entrepreneurial journey is the unhirable nature of your personality. But the next level to that is, I don't think that, I think that is not full ascension into the best version of yourself. I feel like it is maybe an upper stage, but it is certainly not the top stage in my opinion. I think the next level 
up, the, the ascension from the unhirable entrepreneur is someone who can operate with an entrepreneurial spirit inside a larger organization or inside a family of organizations or inside a network of partnerships. Because when you start doing, when you really start growing your agency or your business, whatever the case may be, you start to develop strong partnerships with vendors, with manu- you know, with distributors, with manufacturers, with wherever you are in the value chain, with all these things. And yep. The unhirable entrepreneur is still, and I don't, and I'm not talking specifically about you, but that mentality is still very disagreeable in that ecosystem, right? It's, it's, it's poorly negotiated contracts. It's pushing when you should be giving. It's, it's all these different aspects that made you unhirable in the first place. So the way I look at it as, yes, if you, if you have that entrepreneurial spirit, version one of you has to be and is for everybody. I am the, unhirable entrepreneur who is completely disagreeable, who does what needs to get done, who makes the tough decisions, who puts everyone on their back, who who takes all the hits, who who comes out bleeding and bloody and battered and doesn't care and and doesn't care who who likes them, who doesn't like them to get the job done. That is a huge step forward in a lot of people's career. But I think if that's your last step, you're missing the full version of you, which is to which is to which is to 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 shave off or, or smooth some of those rough edges and be able to take that unyielding, unrelenting uh, personality, experience, mentality, and then be able to massage that into an even larger ecosystem that lets you go farther, faster, with more you know more partnerships, more great relationships, and and that is when I really think you see that ascension. And while I would not say that I am fully there yet. I'm very much trying to be that version of myself, that next level of myself inside the broader SIA network, because yes, I do still run rogue and very much entrepreneurial. And then, you know, I have the podcasts and stuff and all that, but like, I also want to be an amazing, because essentially I am an employee at the executive level of at S- an SIA. So, you know, kind of ownership type level, you know, CEO level at rogue, but then in SIA, I'm, I'm a employee and, and I, I can't go into that arena and be, you know, the guy who was fired from the fitness place. I can't, you know, that doesn't work, if that makes sense. Hey, Freedom Jumper, are you looking to take your business to the next level? Who is it, right? Write more business and see your agency succeed with NBS. At Nationwide Brokerage Solutions, they understand the challenges local agents face in the constantly changing marketplace. That's why they offer a wide array of personal and commercial markets and policy options to help you meet the needs of your customers, no matter how unique or outlandish they may be. With a team of experienced and dedicated professionals that provide you with the support and guidance you need to see your agency succeed, Nationwide Brokerage Solutions is here to support you every step of the way. Don't just survive in the competitive insurance industry. Thrive with Nationwide Brokerage Solutions. Get started today. Learn more at nbsbrokerage.com. It it makes perfect sense. And this, honestly, that statement you just made, that heart attitude is why I just so appreciate you, why I'm grateful for what has become an actual friendship over the last couple of years. And yeah, you are what you just described uh, is the next phase for me, of course. And again, you uh, I say something, you push back and then I clarify my original message uh, <laughs> so that people don't think uh, that there's like contention between us because there's not. I couldn't agree more with what you just said and I think it is a natural evolution of uh, an alpha dog uh, personality because the way that it was described to me by someone who's in another very large network, the largest privately held insurance broker in the world. We went through a a process of, they reached out and I wasn't considering selling. And I was recruited basically to join the leadership team for the state of Texas and sell my agency and and all of those things. And the guy who was spearheading the, the recruiting effort basically said, if you think of it as selling out to the man, you're not ready to consider it at all. But if you think about it as being, you know, you're playing 
double A baseball and you're great in your minor league, you know, league, you're an, you're an all-star at the, you know, double A ball. But then you get drafted to the New York Yankees and now, you know, you were the star in the small game. Now you're just one of many stars in a much bigger game. And I thought that was a very interesting way of approaching the the concept of selling. Um, because a lot of people, myself included, as recently as you know, less than a year ago, said flat out, I don't see me ever selling. And they almost think of it as a failure of sorts if they sell. That one conversation, uh, and then you know, from there, some of the people we talked to last year, uh, one of our previous guests uh, sold to High Street. You know, and then, you know, Matt Namoli and Zach Gould uh, obviously went through their acquisition. Hearing these guys that are wildly successful integrate into a much larger organization, it just supports everything that you just said. You know, the maturation process of the alpha dog, you know, adds that entrepreneurial vibe to a much larger, much more complex organization and is able to you know, take that drive and, and be something special and help move a very large organization even further forward. Because, I mean, SIA is a great example. Masiello is, from everything that I can see, a, a wise and discerning and, and very effective leader. But one of the things he's done best, I feel like, is attract these other alpha dogs uh, around him that are extremely good at complementary skill sets. Yeah, because he leads without ego. Yeah, I, I he's easily the best. If he's not the best, then he's one of the top two or three people I've ever worked for in my career. And um, so, so you know that that's absolutely true. I, just going back to one of the things that you said, um, you know, I had heard you say on the show and just in groups and in meetings and stuff, the whole thing that you didn't think you were ever going to sell. And I'll be honest with you, I've always just in the back of my mind, I mean, I've never said this to you, but like, I just always knew that that was bullshit. And the reason that I know that it's <laughs> bullshit is because you named yeah. your agency risk well and not the Jenkins agency. And if you had named your, if your agency was named the Jenkins agency or Jenkins insurance group or Jenkins, whatever the fuck, then I would say, yeah, you know, maybe you won't sell. Cause it's, you know, for a while, because is. You know, this is about ego. This is about his name yeah. walking around town. Oh, I own the Jenkins group, you know, whatever. That would be different, right? That would, I would see different. But you named your agency Riskwell, which tells me that you're a business owner. And one of the most exciting things for me about the current state of the insurance industry is that we are adding more and more business owners and less and less agency owners every day, right? This industry does not need more agency owners. We don't need more agency owners. Agency owners, they don't think about what they're doing as a business. They sell insurance. That's what they do. And look, there was a time and a space when I think being an agency owner was most likely the best decision you could make, right? You had to be good at insurance. You had to write insurance. It was insurance, insurance, insurance. It wasn't a business. You put every car you had, every in luxury you had in your life, you put through there. And this was a life, this created a lifestyle for you and your family. Okay. That's an agency owner. A business owner looks at their agency and says, I could do this again if I had to. Right. A business owner yep. says, this is a business. I make money. I feed my family. It's an asset. I need to optimize this asset so that when I'm, when it's time, when the right offer comes in, when my family needs it or I need it, I can make a move on this without emotion. I mean, obviously, there's always going to be a little emotion, but you know, without yeah. without emotion or ego to say this is just what has to happen. In the case of Rogue Risk, I got an offer to buy my business that I could not have imagined in 24 months. 24 months after I launched, I got an offer to buy my business, and it was the right company. It was the right team. Did I love the fact that I was giving up the pure autonomy of being the you know the sole decision maker in the business? No, because today for really big decisions, I got to go get some consensus. Now, do I get to make the vast majority of decisions? For sure I do. But there is a threshold of decision at Rogris that today I now have to get some consensus on. And, you know, to most of the people listening who are chest pounding agency owners, they'd be like, ah, screw that. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to run my business the way I'm going to run it. Blah, blah, blah. And I think, and I get that part. 
But the other, I don't, I'm not an agency owner. I'm not even good at being an agency owner. I'm a terrible agency owner. But I'm a pretty decent business owner. And for my business, my team, my family, my life, the right move was to say, remove some ego, understand that you, I truly believed I was joining an incredible team, which I still believe to this day. They've been nothing but amazing for us. And, you know, I've said it a thousand times and I'll say it a thousand more until it's not true. You know, being acquired by SAA was the single best business decision I've ever made. Hiring Michael Blake to be my CRO might be the second best business decision I ever made in my life, but we, that's a conversation for a different day. But like, I just feel like in all these things, whether it's podcasting, it's, you know, whatever you're doing, there is this yin and yang to ego that it, you have to have an ego to be the best at something, but at the same time, you can't allow that ego to stop you from being the best because it can be both a superpower and kryptonite at the exact same time. Yeah, I, I I have experienced exactly what you are talking about. And, yeah. you know, it seems like an appropriate time to say unequivocally, I'm definitely selling the agency at some point. Yeah. Maybe at some point in the not too distant future. You know, this process of selling off uh, the Personal Alliance book of business to our master agency, yeah. uh, the Coverica is part of the SIAA family. Part of the reason why I went to them and said, hey, I'm thinking of selling off my personal lines book and focusing entirely on commercial and real estate investor clients. I sought them out because I want to continue to be associated with this organization. And I know that my clients are going to be very well taken care of by the retail side of, of Coverica. And the deal's not signed yet, but it's agreed on in principle. Uh, and we're working out the details of that. But going through that process of realizing what the exit might look like, going through the process with the other organization and staring a four and a half million dollar check in the face and going, I'm less than four years into this. I started yeah. with $212,000 from selling a farmer's agency that took me six years to build to the point that was worth $212,000 on an exit. To take that and turn it into four and a half million dollars less than four years later, it was like, okay, what's your, what's your why? And it's you, fun being I had, independent, right? <laughs> it, in order to turn away from four and a half million dollar paycheck, I had to look inside myself and answer the why question yep. uh, and, and, and answer the, what are you doing all of this for question? And that to me was the most important part of allowing that process to play out because yeah. now I know what the why is. And you and I share very similar whys, which I think is why it, it is, it's, it's a done deal at some point in, in the not too distant future. I mean, it's definitely not this year or next year, maybe next year if the right thing comes along, but I'm going to sell at some point and yeah. I'm going to do the next thing. And then the next thing after that, and then the next thing after that, but it's still in this space. It's still in this ecosystem and it's still with these people that have become friends and, and, you know for some quasi family members from as much as we talk. So I don't know where I was going with that other than just to echo your sentiments and say, yeah, it, some people, and I love that you put a Southern, like a Mississippi, Alabama accent on because we, we all know there are some people that are chest thumping idiots and, and say, I'll never sell. And they think that that's some kind of a, yeah. a, a you know, a medal of honor. All that really means is they have a, a ceiling that they'll never cross. And, and here's the other side of it too. Um, the best business, and this is why I'm not judging the action. I'm judging, not judging, but I'm not questioning the action. I'm questioning why you made the action. The best business decision for you and your family may be to continue running in perpetuity a lifestyle agency, right? You may decide that for, for what matters to you, for what you want to do, for how you like to live, for how you like to work, continuing to run that agency that you are 100% owner of in the way that you're running it is the best decision. And that is perfectly fine. What, I, what I'm questioning and I think you're echoing and, and we're saying the same things is just make that decision because it's the best business decision for you, your life, your family, what you want, not because you want to be in some Facebook chat group pounding your chest going, you know, I'm not selling, I'm a this or that. That, that to me, when I, you know, when I hear I don't want to sell, 
I don't immediately say that's the wrong decision. What I say is, you know, I just know that what your goals are. So, you know, I kind of knowing that you're ambitious, knowing what you want to do when you would say things like, I'm not going to sell, I'd be like, ah, you know, I have a feeling you'll come around, but like, we'll see. <laughs> but like, if you were like, Hey, I love not working. I love to golf every Friday. And my, you know, I like that, that, you know, I get to, you know, put all my expenses through my business and, and all this kind of stuff. Like if that was the life, if that was your, your, your thing, then I'd say, dude, never sell, continue doing what you're doing. You're doing amazing. So it's, enjoy your golf. It's yeah. It's not the, it's not the decision. It's the, the filters that you pass the decision through that I, that I, that I question, I guess, if that makes sense. I, I think we're at a, at a great resolution of that one. You yeah. know, as answering the only thing I'll say just to, to put a bow on top for those out there that are trying to figure out, Hey, maybe I'm like James and Ryan, you know, at one point, Maybe you said, I'll never sell. Uh, maybe, you know, you're revisiting Oh, no, I was that. always or, selling this motherfucker. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, you, you for sure. Yeah. No, it, it's the, the listener out there who's who has said in the past, oh, I'll never yeah, sell. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and thinking, well, what if I did? What would that look like? Now, the, the only thing I'll say is just ask yourself, what are you doing this for? What is the reason to keep on Yep. going and what might the next thing look like if it's not running this agency until you drop dead someday yeah so see for me what what I love doing more than anything um I, so one thing that I've that's always been um and I, and I don't I'm not trying to sound like a martyr here but one of the things that's that's kind of held some of my success that I've had in my career back is I take very little joy in personal success um I just I have this, whether it's a mental thing or maybe I'm a psychopath, you know, depending on who you talk to, I'm sure you get different opinions. Um, I, I take almost no joy in my own success. I love winning. I do. But, and I like competing and I do, you know, very much like winning, but winning it's never been about my name on the marquee. Like, so, so personal victories, it just doesn't mean that much to me. What I love doing it's helping organizations, helping others. It's why I've shared so much. It's why, you know, from 2014 to 2018, I traveled two, three weeks a month all over the country doing speaking gigs and masterminds and, you know, at board meetings of different companies sharing expertise. And the reason that I did this and all the podcasts and all the emails and all the newsletters and the reason that I write Finding Peak now and the reason I do all these things is because... I get immense amount of personal joy out of watching others be successful. And, you know, so I look at my career and what I've kind of said to myself is like, how do I do that? I also like money. So just everyone's clear. I am also a staunch capitalist. Um, so how do I do that and make the, the personal income, personal wealth that allows me to live a lifestyle that I like to live? And, you know, I've, you know, kind of come to the point where like, you know, after Rogue, and, and Rogue is, I have a long way to go with Rogue. So it's not like this is like a tomorrow thing. But I know that where my path is heading me is I really love investing in companies. I love it. I've done five angel investments since, uh, well, one was in this, one technically wasn't angel, it was a seed stage. Um, actually, that's not true. One was a series B, one was a seed, and two or three were angels. But um, so I've made five personal investments in companies since. I sold Rogue Risk and I love it. When I say I love it, breaking down companies, giving feedback to founders, follow along in journeys, making connections, using my network to help people grow their business, using my network and experience to help people get insights into uh, what's going on in our channel, where we need to position, how we need to position. Like this is what brings me massive amounts of joy. Like, and, and, and like personal satisfaction is like, Help watching companies make these connections. And, and some of them I've been in longer than others, but you know, just this is what I love to do. So I know this is where I'm headed. So for me, owning my own service business, which is essentially, you know, you know, we're either in a service business or a manufacturing business, depending on how you set it up, um, or kind of retail distribution business, I guess is probably a different way to look at it. But having a day-to-day -day function in a business of that nature in the next part of my career, once Rogue is done and I get it to where I want to be, which like I said, is not soon. I have, you know, I have a ways to go with where I want to take it. Um, I know that's the next phase. So to me, 
owning that business that takes my attention away from looking at trends, talking to people, networking, helping people, giving feedback, being part of board calls, like that is anything that takes me away from that day to day is not where I want my attention to be in the next phase of my career. So understanding that it allows me to do things and, and, and maybe that's with SIA as part of their strategic investment team. Maybe it's with the PE company or some partnership. You know, I, there's no, this isn't something I have to do on my own or whatever. Just that's where I want to be. So like knowing that that's the next plan, it allows me to say, it allows me to look at Rogue and say, this is a project, right? This is a, yep. let's call it a five-year project from today. So I've been in, well, we're essentially at the three, mar- we're a little less than the three-year mark. Um, Rogue was launching mark. March of Rogue. And I mentally, I say that this is about a three to five year project. And um, so if that being the case and putting that timeline on it, it allows me to make certain decisions about the business and about my life and about uh, and inside the business to hit those goals. Cause I know that's where I want to be, right? I'm not emotionally attached to some fucking process that I put in because I was, you know, it was only three of us when we did it. And, you know, because people get emotionally attached to these things. Like you were giving your blood, sweat and tears to something and you get attached to a process. You get attached to a way of doing business. And what I've been able to do by looking at this as a project is say, I'm not emotionally attached to anything. All I care about is what gets us, is what wins, right? If it helps my people do their job better, if it's my clients uh, purchase and procure insurance in a more thoughtful way, faster and and, and more competitively priced, is it, is it helping us grow our profitability? Is it helping us um, deliver on the results that we promised to SIA and and Odyssey, the, the PE company, you know, when we were sold, like if it's a, if it moves us in that direction, then it's a win agnostic of what I think is right or wrong. So, so I, it, it is like, um, it's kind of like, uh, and this is going to be super zen and I don't mean it to be, but it's just the best analogy I have in my head right now is like, it's almost like the Bruce Lee quote, which is like, you know, be like water, right? I'm rogue is water and we are going to form to whatever gets us to where we need to be. We, we, I have some philosophical beliefs on what that should be that kind of give us a vector, but the iterations of that vector are a hundred percent determined by what wins and what loses with no emotional attachment to individual processes or theses or whatever. If I, if one of my core beliefs just blows up, I will throw that shit in the garbage and I will form a new core philosophy and we will continue on. And I will not even think twice about it. And, um, I feel like that gives me an edge over every one of my competitors who is emotionally attached to what they do every day. I am not. Although that does not mean that I am any less ambitious to eat everyone who is listening to this podcast lunch. Just so I, I just love that energy so much. And when you, I thought it was so, so true to who you are and, uh, the way that you do things when you're in the middle of giving a keynote in Austin and you say, and by the way, I want to beat all of you. I, I'm going head to head with all of you uh, and I want to win. I want to take your lunch at the closing table. And I was just like, God, that is so handly. And I <laughs> love it. I uh, don't, don't, uh, don't take this the wrong way, but I want more of that in my life. You know, the, the chutzpah to just, stand in front of your audience and say, hey, all of you that are taking notes on this thing that I'm talking about right now, if we go face to face, I'm trying to beat you and and take it from you. And I just, I love the energy, man. Well, you know, we're, we're at the end of our time together. I know you and I both have a very full day. Yep. Um, I want to take just a second here and they're, they're not paying me for this. At some point in the future, they might, who knows. But you and I both choose to be affiliated with SIAA. Yes. We, can't, we have our pick of the litter. You and I could go to any network, any organization in the country, and they would probably be happy to have us as long as we are well-behaved uh, and not completely unhirable, as previously yes. stated in the episode. Mm-hmm. I'd love to take just a second uh, and, and promote SIAA to the listening audience shamelessly uh, because I think they're one of the very best organizations in our industry. I put them right up there with Keystone is another great one. Mm-hmm. Um, had a nice conversation with Kenny Urbania of the Agency Collective, and yep. uh, they're doing some good stuff as well. I'm not going to say that SIAA is the best because that depends on the individual. 
but I will say they are absolutely one of the very best in our industry. Why did you uh, choose to be affiliated with them? Mass Yellow. Okay. Yeah. I mean, Starts at the top. Yeah. I just had enough conversations with him. Uh, my situation is a little different since we since they bought us. You know, we didn't just join the network, but yeah. Um, you know, I had I did I was raising money because obviously I did not want to wait around. I'm not good. Patience is not a virtue of mine. I, I wish that it was. I know that it should be, but no one's ever going to say you know patient leader on my fucking tombstone. Like it's just not going to it's not going to say that. So um you know so I uh, I did 57 venture capital meeting venture capital meetings. And like other organizations, so so not just VC firms, other organizations like SSA. So I had 57 meetings about funding Rogue Risk to take us to the level that we wanted to get to. And, you know, when I met with Matt, talked through, you know, took our relationship a step further, I was convinced that this was this was a person that I could work for, that this was a person who, you know, we may not and or probably won't and don't agree on absolutely everything. And, you know, I definitely push on things and, you know, not everything fits exactly the timing and and all that is completely natural. But what I've never not experienced is a level of respect, understanding and listening. And I've always felt like even if even if there is a disagreement on the next course, I very much felt like I was being heard, right? I felt like, okay, we hear you. Maybe the timing's not right. Maybe we philosophically disagree and just need more convincing. Maybe, you know, insert whatever the reason is. And that's that this has happened a lot. But I've always felt respected and heard and not dismissed. And for me, that is a, a very unique characteristic. Our industry tends to dictate terms. And I was like, I this is an ecosystem that I felt like I could add value to and extract a massive amount of value back and that there was a, a really good symbiotic relationship. And I, that was kind of came down from the top as being understanding, listening, um, driven, uh, all the things that I really have a ton of respect for. So um, to me, it was, you know, once, once I spent that time, it was a no brainer. Yep. Yeah. I found it really interesting in, in Carrie's talk in Austin, she shared a statistic that I hadn't seen before uh, that was uh, 61% of independent uh, agencies, retail agencies, are a part of some kind of network. Yep. Whether you call it an aggregator, a cluster, a network, or whatever, um, whether it's you know CLI Select with Danielle Smink, or Pacific Underwriters, or Iroquois, or whatever, 61% yeah. uh, of retail agencies are part of a network. For me, it was an amazing move to get with SIAA. The, the two negatives that people always talk about is the divorce clause is seen as somewhat punitive. And I push back on that aggressively as, yeah, it's important that you make sure that you're aware of the divorce clause and you know exactly what the implications are. Yeah. But the divorce clause is only relevant if you intend to fail, if you intend to cut, you know, quit. Because the, if you sell, then the divorce clause is irrelevant. Yep. So I, I push back on that hard. Being aware of it, yes. Negotiate it, as I did. I negotiated a significantly better divorce clause, but I bet on myself in order to do it. And it was one of those if-then sort of things. Yeah. You could also so, you could also just carry that that divorce clause, um, whatever the percentage is. You also just carry it in a secondary balance sheet, like a non you know official balance sheet, but a secondary balance sheet that carries as liability, so you always know what it is. That's that's yeah. another way to do it, as well as the fact that what most of those people who have that issue are forgetting is that they would have never got the initial appointments, they would have never got the maximization of revenue that allowed yeah. them to get to the point where they even give a shit about the divorce clause if they hadn't join the network to begin with. So, and it, it you know, I, I hear that and trust me, I get the frustration with it. Like I hundred percent, you, you get to a certain point, you look to sell and you're like, shit, I'm losing money. Right. That's what, that's the thought process. But I feel like, again, thinking as a business owner and not an agency owner, right. Yep. One, negotiate the fee up front, negotiate it. Like, don't just, yep. if, if you sign a contract, if there's no, you don't get to then be pissed. You signed the contract. If you didn't do your homework up front, if you didn't hire an attorney, if you didn't think about it, that's you being an agency owner and not a business owner. So if you think about it like a business owner, then you then you're you're thinking long term. You're saying to yourself, geez, I'm getting five markets I wouldn't have had day one that would have taken me years to earn. 
Two, I'm maximizing every dollar that comes into my agency today versus waiting till you hit some certain threshold to get contingencies. I mean, we have a a decent sized book with employers and by decent, you know, it's a six figure book, but it's not big. Technically, if we were an employer's only agent, if we were not affiliated with SIA, we would not yet be at, we're close now, but you know, we would, when we started with SIA, we would not have been at contingency level with, with, with employers. Day one, the day we sign the contract and our codes move over, we're in contingency and we're starting to get additional revenue. So like I look at that and I go, man, I really like cashing that extra check. That's nice. You know, I like the fact that when you write a Hartford policy, you're adding somewhere between two to four points of additional income when, when added up through overrides and bonuses and, and contingency payments. I like those extra two to four points. I like that. Yep. that that's real nice. You know, so, you know, I look at those things and I just say to myself, think about all these decisions like business owners instead of agency owners and they make a lot more sense. Again, SA is not right for everybody, 100%. No. I mean, you know, I I feel the same way about Danielle that I feel about Matt. So, like, if I wasn't an SIA member and I was looking for a network, I would, she'd probably be my next call. I think that she does a tremendous job and uh, I think she's just as high quality a person and professional and, um, you know, that's another good one. So like when people ask me, I'm like, I think SA is great. I think you should give them a shot, but you should call two or three others as well. And you should do yep. that with just about everything. Cause that's being a business owner. hundred percent agree. And, uh, if I didn't say it explicitly before Danielle, you are one very cool lady and I could definitely, uh, be a part of your network. I, I wouldn't have any problem being affiliated with CLI. The, the second negative that is brought up consistently, and I want to end with this. Uh, because I feel like, and some people might disagree with me, I feel like I owe SIAA some loyalty because they took a chance on me and Coverica spent a lot of hours, I promise you, you can ask them, hundreds of hours supporting me in that first year, helping me wrap my head around leaving farmer's land and captive land and how to be an independent agent and how to deal with carriers and how to not stick my foot all the way down my throat. Um, so the, the second big negative that I hear is the ongoing fees, the month after month, even after you're, you're up and established, even if they don't do anything like handholding that month, you're still paying them a split. And the only thing I'll say, and Ryan just said some of it is you're getting guaranteed points that are not loss ratio dependent. And those are paid out quarterly and annually, regardless of how your agency does from day one, you're making those. And I, I knew we were going to get to this part in the conversation, so I went and looked it up. Since joining SIAA, the total expenses paid to them and and their split of the bonuses or contingencies, because they get a, a fraction of what the agency gets, I'm almost 350% ROI yeah. of what of every dollar that I've paid them in the last almost four years, I've made almost $3.50 for every dollar that I've paid them. Yeah. And most of those dollars, had I done it on my own, I never would have got there. So it's just yeah. the the fees more than justified, in my opinion. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I said this a while ago, and you know, I got some pushback too, just from people who are purists. But like, I don't think we're too far off from everyone's in a network. You know, almost have to being be the ubiquitous term for all the different versions of 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 this concept. Yeah. I don't think we're too far off from everybody. I mean, I know we're at 61% today. So the people that are that hate on it, it's like the majority of the industry does it. So actually, the people that are not part of networks these days should be seen more as the outsiders than the people who are part of them. And two, um, joining a network is not a sign of weakness, as some of these assholes have said. If that's not that's not the case at all. That's complete just BS. And I think there will be a day in the not too distant future where you just that's just what you do. Like day one, I got to go get my AMS and I got to, you know, buy a computer and I got to get licensed and I got to pick which network I'm going to be part of. And like, that's like one of just the standard, you know, month one decisions that you, that you make uh, with your agency is, is that I just, it just, to me, the way that everything's going with the carrier relationships, the carrier contracts. Uh, yes, if you hit a certain level or size, do you need them? No, but you're essentially an aggregator at that point anyways, because what you're really doing is pooling, you know, to get that big, you're pooling premiums from multiple locations, probably multiple rolled up agencies anyways. So, you know, I, I just think there'll be a day when everyone will be part of a network. I don't disagree. 
Yeah. Uh, I'm going to wrap this thing up because you and I both have other things to do. Listener out there, Mr. or Mrs. Freedom Jumper, if you want to have a conversation, at least get informed about the SIAA opportunity. If you're still a captive agent and you're trying to figure out how in the world to make your Freedom Jump, or if you're an unaffiliated retail agency somewhere uh, in the country, if you're a part of that 39%, that's not already a part of a network, and you want to, to get a personal introduction to whoever the right person is uh, in your part of the country for SIAA, there's 45 master agencies that are all across the country uh, that serve the Frontline's retail agent. If you email me uh, at uh, podcast at agencyfreedom.com or drop me a message on social, I'll be happy to get you connected with the right people in your part of the country. Uh, and that's really all there is to it. Ryan, any last thoughts here? Or are we ready to land the plane? No, I, I appreciate you, man. I think you're doing great work here and you're, you know, I just love to see how you've consistently grown and it's been such a pleasure to become your, your friend and buddy. And, uh, I'll just, if anybody wants to, don't email me about any of the stuff James has said. Email James if you want to do that stuff because I don't want to deal with that nonsense. So you email James if you have questions about SIA. But if you want to learn about any of the other stuff that I was talking about, um, you can find me. Uh, I post these like little peak performance articles at findingpeak.com. You can just subscribe by email. It's tons of fun. I have a podcast. Right. And if you want to check out uh, and kind of validate if all the BS that I said on the on the show is real. You can go to roguerist.com and check out the agency. So that's where you get at me. I'll make sure all those links are in the show notes for this episode. And that's it for this one, boys and girls. Make it a great day. Thanks for joining us for another episode of the Agency Freedom Podcast. Y'all take care. Thanks for listening to the Agency Freedom Podcast. Please subscribe to AFP on your favorite platform to get automatic updates with every new episode and help other people find us. If you like what you hear, please drop us a review and tell the world what you like best. Most importantly, please share AFP with someone you know who is still in captivity. They'll thank you later. Visit our website at agencyfreedom.com to get access to exclusive content and announcements. Join our community on Facebook by typing in Agency Freedom in the search bar. Send your questions, comments, guest recommendations, and favorite grilling recipes to us at podcast at agencyfreedom.com. This is the Agency Freedom Podcast, where we help insurance professionals move from captivity to freedom. Until next time, let's go. Let's go.